Well, as you can see in your bulletin, we turn now to God's Word, our New Testament reading. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And just to set the stage here a little bit, remember last week's sermon was inspired by our church's Summer Bible Institute a few weeks back. Spent that week with some of the kids in our church learning about some of the basics about the Bible, what this book is and, and what it's for and what it's like and how to read it. So last week's sermon was inspired by all of that. In particular, it grew out of the things that the kids and I talked about concerning Jesus as the main character in the whole book. The Bible revolves around Jesus. It, it focuses on Him. It centers on Him. It, it reveals His person and work. So last Sunday morning here, we turned to John 5, because that's a great place to go to drive that point home. And so last Sunday, we learned from John 5 that the Old Testament pre-testified to Christ, because Jesus said, it is the Scriptures that bear witness about me. He even said, Moses wrote of me. So we saw that, how the Old Testament pre-testified to Christ, but then we also learned about the New Testament and about the witnesses to Christ that we find there in those pages, like John the Baptist, and Jesus himself, for that matter, and his Father in heaven and his apostles after him. So whether it's the Old Testament which pointed forward to Christ in time, or the New Testament which pointed back to him on earth and up to him in heaven, the Bible from start to finish revolves around Jesus. So that was last Sunday, a sermon that grew out of our Summer Bible Institute, well, today's sermon does as well. Also inspired by that time that I spent with the kids and the things that we learned together this morning, I want the rest of us to learn along with them. So we're going to 2 Timothy 3. You can see in your bulletin, we're going to focus on the passage beginning at verse 14, but I'll pick up reading for us at verse 10. Paul writes, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, 
equipped for every good work. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for your word and ask now that you would open our eyes to behold the wonders that are to be found here. Indeed, cause us to grow even in these moments, to grow in our love for your word, in our estimation of the priceless jewel that it is in our hands. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So as I say, it was our summer Bible Institute that inspired what we're up to this morning. The very first thing that we talked about in that study a few weeks back in our summer Bible Institute, so so right out of the gate Monday morning, our very first theme was the uniqueness of the Bible. What is it that sets this book apart? What is it that makes this book unlike any other? That seemed like a very good place to start. And I said to the kids, I said, there are any number of books and publications that we could spend our time studying together this week. We could have a summer newspaper institute, and we'd have a good week learning about current events, although it might be kind of depressing. I said we could have a summer Calvin and Hobbes institute, although I'm not sure I should have suggested that because they got pretty excited about that prospect. We could have a summer Calvin and Hobbes Institute, and we'd have a good week learning about parent-child relationships and child babysitter and child tiger and table manners. We could have a summer dictionary institute, and we could just spend the week looking up long, interesting-sounding words, and by the end of the week, we'd all be ready for the SAT. But no, we're not getting together for any of that. We're getting together for a summer Bible Institute. All of those books and publications that we pay attention to and that we might even give a whole week to. Why are we turning to this one? What is it that sets this book apart? And that's an important question because the Bible is not entirely other. There's a good bit that this book has in common with other books, and it's important that we recognize that. That'll shape how we read it. For example, that means that reading habits that we use with other books, many of them apply to this one too. And and we talked about that, and for me it was fun to hear from the kids about the kinds of things that they enjoy reading, and I told them a little bit about the book that I had just finished myself. And yet there must be something about this one book that sets it apart from all others. What, What is it? What makes it unique? The answer is it's the Word of God. More fully, it's one book that's a collection of 66 books that we regard as Holy Scripture. It comes from God as the very Word of God. And as you might imagine, one of the passages that we went to in the Bible itself in order to unpack that, in order to learn about that, is this passage right here, 2 Timothy 3, especially verses 14 through 17. 
So we're going to take a look at these verses here this morning. Let me say, we're not going to make our way straight through beginning at verse 14. Instead, we're going to start with what is the heart of the matter there in verse 16. And then we're going to branch out from there. So we're not going to start with, with verse 14. We'll, we'll start straight away with verse 16 and then branch out from there. And you can see the points of the sermon, they're built into the title of the sermon, the prominence, prophet, and power of Scripture. So we'll begin with the provenance of Scripture. I will candidly admit This is a desperate attempt on my part to get all three of my sermon points this morning to start with the letter P. I will force it. I will die on the hill that is Mount Alliteration if I have to. Notice it's provenance with an N. It's not providence with a D. That's another great word. That's another great doctrine. But that's also another sermon for another Sunday. This word is provenance. It's a word that just means origin. It's a word that comes from words that mean to come from, to come forth. It has to do with origins. And that's what our first point this morning boils down to. The question is, where does Scripture come from? What is its origin? Put another way, whom does Scripture come from? And the answer is it comes from God as the very Word of God, breathed out by Him. And that's what Paul says in verse 16. Look at verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is breathed out by God. So what he says there, beginning of verse 16, he says about all Scripture. Now, remember, at this point in history, what we call the Old Testament today, that would have been their Bible back then. That would have been their collection of recognized, divinely given scriptural writings. Although, remember this as well, and you can tell this from the New Testament itself, as the apostles are putting their testimony into writing, Paul and Peter and John and the others, they're they're actually aware of the fact that their writings are now the scriptures of God's new covenant revelation, which must have been a rather mind-blowing thing for them to realize, at least at first, that they were now playing that part, that role in salvation history. What Paul says here, he says about all Scripture, and and they'd have known somehow, in some way, to some degree, Paul and Peter and John and the others, they'd have known that their own apostolic writings were rounding out the collection in salvation history. Why? Because God had done a new thing in Jesus Christ. And that meant that a new word was called for to proclaim and make sense of what God had done. And that meant that new writings were called for in order to record that word and record it infallibly. That's the way God had always worked. So Paul's talking here about all Scripture. And then 
Notice what he says about all Scripture. He says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is breathed out by God. The way he puts it there, it's one word, it's the adjective, God-breathed. It combines the words for God and breath and makes one word out of them. All Scripture is God-breathed. It's a word that you don't find anywhere else in the Bible. It's a word that you don't find anywhere else in anything else that had been written up to this time. Some folks have wondered if Paul made up the word for the purpose of expressing what he's getting at here. That may be. We don't know. In any case, he says it here. All Scripture is God-breathed. So it's a claim about the origin or the source of Scripture. Though the Scriptures were written by human beings, and Paul himself was one of them, and he knew it, what's ultimately true of the Scriptures is that they come from God as his own breathed-out word. As Peter puts it in another passage, We can say that God carried those human writers along so that their finished product, their finished written product, was His Word. Scripture is of divine origin in that sense. Now, of course, in a broader sense, everything in creation comes from God, including every book that's ever been written. And it comes from God, everything in creation, as the work of His Spirit, His mighty breath. And that's because God is the God of providence. So that's true. That's true of everything that we see, every book on our shelves. But what Paul's talking about here is something else. What Paul's saying here is on another level, he's saying that Scripture comes from God as words breathed out by Him so that they are His words. So just to be clear, the point here is not that Scripture has an effect on us when we read it, inspiring us, though in a sense that's true. The point here is not that God exercised an influence on the human writers who wrote it, inspiring them, though in a sense that's true. No, the point here is about the origin of Scripture. Scripture comes from God as words breathed out by Him so that they are His words. So even to use the word inspired when we talk about Scripture, we've got to be careful when we use that word, that we don't get the wrong impression. Because when you talk about something being inspired, You're talking about something or someone that already exists, and then something else or someone else breathes into it and affects it and moves it in some way. But what Paul's saying here in this verse is not that. Here in 2 Timothy 3, it's not that God breathed into something or someone and affected it. It's that God breathed out Scripture itself and so created it by means of those human writers that he carried along. That's the idea. So what that means is that 
Technically, literally, we can affirm with great gusto that the Bible is expired. Obviously, not in the sense that it's past its date. I I do think it's unfortunate that when we hear the word expired, what comes to mind is that bottle of salad dressing that's been in the fridge way too long, or the coupon that you plan to use today only to read the fine print and discover that it was only good through yesterday. But the word expired just means what it sounds like. It means breathed out as opposed to breathed in. I think it can help you if you put the emphasis on the first syllable. Expired. Exhaled. And that's what we're saying here about the Scriptures. It's not that God breathed into something or someone and affected it. It's that God breathed out Scripture itself and so created it. So we say about the provenance of Scripture, its source, its origin. That's our first point. And with each of our three points this morning, I do want us to stop and think about how how this touches down in our lives, how it applies, because they all do. So what about this point? All Scripture is breathed out by God. What difference does that make? What difference should that make in your life? Well, the difference it ought to make, and there are A lot of things we could say here. I'll focus on this one. The difference it ought to make is what God says way back in the book of Isaiah. This is Isaiah 66, verse 2. God says this, This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit, and who trembles at my word. Trembles. At my word, Isaiah 66, verse 2. And of course, we tremble at the word precisely because it is God's word. If it's really true, and it is, that this book is a collection of writings that God has breathed out as his very word, it ought to make us tremble. I mean, in a good way, in a joyful, grateful, expectant way, it ought to make us tremble. I mean, the very thought of something being breathed out, what is breath? It's something that comes from a person, that expresses something of their own life and power. Here is divine life and power and truth. A word that is of that character, it ought to make us tremble. There's nothing like it. So by all means, it's good to read your newspaper and your Calvin and Hobbes and your dictionary, especially your Calvin and Hobbes. To this day, when I walk down the cereal aisle at the grocery store, I think, just once, I wish I could buy a box of cereal called Chocolate Frosted Sugar Bombs, Calvin's favorite cereal. It's good to be a reader. It's good to read all sorts of things, vast and wide, silly and serious. But just remember, there's no book in your life. There's no publication that ought to drive you to your knees the way this one does so that you read it and pour over it and study it and and meditate upon it and cry out for understanding. Cry out to the very God who breathed it out. You cry out for his, His breath, His Spirit now to work in you as you read this book. And if you find in your life that it doesn't much do that anymore, make you tremble, 
If you find that familiarity with the Bible has bred contempt, and that danger always lurks at the door, the good news is that this very book reveals a God of grace. That's one of the things that we love about it. Reveals a God of grace, reveals a Savior in whom there is truth and grace. And so you can say, God of grace, God of the Bible, forgive me. And he does. And teach me. Teach me again to tremble at your word because I believe that's what this book is. So we start there with the provenance of Scripture. Now, secondly... That brings us to the prophet of Scripture, P-R-O-F-I-T, the prophet of Scripture. It's here especially that we get to the question, what is Scripture for? God has spoken. We've just established that. God has breathed out these very writings as his very word. That was our first point. Well, now our second point, the question is why? What's the point? What's the purpose? What's it for? What profit should I personally gain? Should I seek to gain from these writings that I now have in my possession? Well, Paul mentions four things in verse 16. Notice what he says. Verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Now, like a lot of verses in the Bible, the fact that there's a list of items in this verse, that doesn't mean that it's meant to be an exhaustive or comprehensive list. It's not like we couldn't add things to the list of Scripture's prophet in our lives. It's not like Paul couldn't have said more about the purpose of Scripture, but still, this is quite a list. These four things, just by themselves, they cover a lot of ground when it comes to what we should want Scripture to do and to be in our experience. So, first of all, teaching. Scripture is profitable because it shows us the truth. Second of all, reproof, the writings are valuable because they rebuke us when we have wandered from the truth in some way. Third of all, correction, Scripture's profitable because it calls us back when we've wandered into sin in some way. And it's our life, it's our conduct, it's our behavior that needs to be corrected. And then fourth of all, training in righteousness. The writings are valuable Because they are an indispensable part of our spiritual and moral training program. This isn't just about getting ideas into our heads. This is about being personally, deeply forged in righteousness. This is about being trained. And the Bible's a big part of that. So those purposes of Scripture. We can say that about the prophet of Scripture, teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. And then notice what he says next in verse 17. He says, Scripture is profitable for these things, that the man of God may be complete, 
equipped for every good work. Now, remember what's going on in this letter. Remember what this letter is. This letter is Paul writing to Timothy. This letter is Paul writing to Timothy as a young pastor about being a pastor. That's why we call this letter one of the pastoral letters, one of the pastoral epistles. So here in verse 17, when Paul says that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, his point is, Scripture is profitable for all of these purposes so that you, Timothy, as a pastor, may be thoroughly equipped to do what you're called to do in the lives of the people you're called to serve. So he's saying, Timothy, as a pastor, Scripture is your stock in trade. Scripture is, is what you're equipped with. It's what you deal in. So that's what we can say here. That's what we can learn here from Paul about the prophet of Scripture. That's how it, it ought to pay off personally in each of our lives. Paul mentions those four things, teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. And so it's not hard to think about application here. How should this touch down in our lives? Well, you ought to go to Scripture expecting all four of these things to happen. Whether it's your daily Bible reading, or the weekly sermon, or a weekly living room Bible study, or a weekly Zoom Bible study, or some other way that you're interacting with the Bible, you ought to go to Scripture expecting all four of these things to happen. And let me say, not just expecting them, but wanting them, desiring this fourfold gain. And it is all gain, even when it stings, and sometimes it does. Remember, Paul uses the word profitable here, and not just impactful. It's all profit. It's all gain, even when it lays us low. So we can go back over, all four of them. First of all, you should expect and want to be taught by the Bible. It's always a really bad sign, spiritually speaking, when somebody gets to the point where they think they have nothing left to learn. And I've met people like that, and I imagine you have as well. Like they've arrived. Like they've graduated from learning, and now they they occupy this lofty perch. Not a good sign. Not a good place to be. It's one of the beauties of the Bible that everyone can keep learning from it so long as they live. It's one of the glories of Scripture, as it's been put in the past by greats in the past. It's one of the glories of Scripture that it's one and the same book that children can play in like a shallow pool and scholars can dive into and never reach the bottom like an unfathomable ocean. One and the same book. That's one of its glories. That's one of its beauties. That you, you can keep learning from it so long as you live. So teaching. Second of all, you should expect and want to be rebuked. How about that? You should expect and desire 
to be rebuked by this book. Obviously, you don't want it to be the case that you're thinking wrongly about God in some way. So you don't want that. But when that's the case, don't you want to be made aware of it and shown the truth instead? And no question, brothers and sisters, this is swimming upstream in our culture today to embrace this, to want this. One of the things that is so poisonous and so paralyzing about our contemporary culture is that it has become characteristic of our public discourse and debate that you never, ever dare admit that you got anything wrong, right? Never show that kind of weakness. Instead, in our culture today, when you think that maybe, just maybe, you got something wrong, what do you do? You shout louder. And then maybe people won't notice. Or you change the subject. Or you lob verbal bombs at your enemies. Whatever you do, you never, ever dare admit that you got anything wrong. And as Christians, we have got to swim against that cultural tide. We've got to be willing to admit, even in matters of faith, that we get some things wrong. And that we need to be rebuked. We've got to be willing to testify that we're glad for the sacred writings that we have that rebuke us. And show us truths that we've missed. Third of all, along the same lines, you should expect and want to be corrected. Same idea. You don't want it to be the case that you've wandered into sin, but when you have, when you've lost your way ethically, you should expect and want the sacred writings to call you back, and they will. God breathed them out in part for that very purpose in your life. Proverbs says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Well, this book is the word of your very best friend. And faithful are the wounds. Faithful is the healing. And then the last one as well. You should expect and want to be trained. Friends, this is not a book that you merely dabble in. This is a book that you commit yourself to so as to be trained by. And training isn't easy. It takes all of you. So you ought to go to Scripture expecting all four of these things to happen, even wanting them to happen. And then... Tying it into the pastoral dimension, we can say this as well. You ought to come to church expecting and wanting these things to happen. Because remember, this is a passage that we find in a letter that was written to a pastor about being a pastor. And so you ought to want these things from your pastors, from Dave and me. Or from whoever your pastors are, if you're visiting with us today. You ought to want these things from our pastoral ministry of the Word. And you can pray for us. You can pray for Dave and me that we wouldn't lose sight of it either. That is the prophet of Scripture. And that brings us to our our third and last point, which is the, the power of Scripture. 
This has been implied, I think, in what we've said so far, but now we're going to bring it front and center, the power of Scripture. And it's here that we back up in our passage. It's here that we back up to verses 14 and 15. I wanted us to start with the provenance, the origin of Scripture, and then make our way into the profit of Scripture. And at this point, we've covered that ground. But now we back up to see what Paul says in verses 14 and 15 that led him into all of this. Notice what he says in those verses, 14 and 15, about the power of of Scripture in Timothy's life. It's certainly true. He's writing this letter to Timothy as a pastor, and yet he wants to remind him, wants to remind Timothy that his own relationship to the sacred writings did not begin when he became a pastor. It goes way back goes way back to Timothy's own beginnings. Look at verse 14. He says, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So you see, Paul's saying something about the power of Scripture. He's saying that the Scriptures are able to do something. And what is it that they're able to do? They're able to make you wise. Wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And that is power. That is the power of Scripture. And for me, one of the most powerful aspects of this whole passage is the way that Paul makes it personal for Timothy by reminding him about his own life. He says, verse 14, he says in effect, Timothy, you know who taught you all of this. And as the readers of this letter, we know as well, we know who they were because back in chapter 1, Paul names some of them. Going back to chapter 1 in this letter, In fact, it's one of the very first things he says to him. Chapter 1, verse 4, Paul writes to him, As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. That's chapter 1. Lois and Eunice grandmother and mother. They're the ones who handed this over to Timothy when he was a boy. And not only that, but now Paul himself has had a role in Timothy's life to reinforce and build on that foundation. So you see how this this fills out our understanding of how the Bible comes to us. I mean, from start to finish today, all the way from God-breathed to Lois and Eunice and Paul himself. We can put it this way. The Bible is divinely breathed out and then humanly handed over. You see that? The Bible is divinely breathed out and then humanly handed over. And that's perfect. That's beautiful. 
Its ultimate origin, its ultimate source is God, but in your life and mine, it's pressed into our hands by fellow believers who are flesh and blood just like us. And that's perfect, that's beautiful. So Christian, in your life, who was it? What are their names? Who is it still? In Timothy's life, it was Lois and Eunice and Paul. It was grandma and mom and then a spiritual father. And I love the fact that we know their names. It makes it so personal, so flesh and blood. And in fact, just putting it that way, putting it in terms of that phrase, flesh and blood, that is so apt Flesh and blood. Think about it this way. The Bible that you have in your hands, it comes to you with fingerprints on it. The fingerprints of the people who have loved you by giving you the truth. And it comes to you thanks to the sacrifices that they made for you. The devotion that they poured out for you in order to give you the truth in the way that they have flesh and blood, fingerprints and sacrifice. In Timothy's life, it was Lois and Eunice and Paul. What about you? What about your life? Who was it? Who is it still? What are their names? Are you grateful for them? One of the ways that you honor them, one of the ways that you show your gratitude for them is by making the most of these writings that you have by their kindness. And then to keep going, are you growing in your own grasp of the God-breathed writings in such a way that you'll be better equipped to hand them over to other people the way they were handed over to you? You can name the names of the people who gave you the Bible. Ideally, there are others who can name your name, or someday they will. And they don't have to be your children. It can be anybody in your life whom you've impacted by handing over to them in some way the truth that was handed over to you enshrined in these writings. And that is power. Brothers and sisters, we've known that power thanks to flesh and blood And thanks to the very Spirit of God, may others in our lives know it as well. And amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that we have known that power, the power and the profit of these God-breathed writings. Grant us to tremble again at the thought of what we hold in our hands. Grant us to experience the profit, the gain that you intend for us by these writings. And may we be grateful for those who have handed it over to us. And may we be faithful to carry on this happiest of traditions. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.